Welcome to Writer Spark Academy's Tips, Tricks, and the Craft of Writing. I'm your host, Melissa Bourbon, and today we are talking about adding humor to your writing with best-selling author Diane Kelly. So grab a cup of something tasty, settle in, and get ready to ignite your writer spark. Welcome to Writer's Park Academy's Tips, Tricks, and the Craft of Writing. I am your host, Melissa Bourbon, and I'm super excited today to be talking with my good friend, best-selling author, Diane Kelly. Welcome, Diane. Thanks so much for having me here. I appreciate it. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we're going to be talking about adding humor to your writing. So first, let me introduce you to those people who might not know everything that you've written. So you have multiple series, including your first series, The Death and Taxes, which features IRS investigator uh, Tara Holloway. And then you have the Pawn Enforcement series and then Busted, there we go, and then Busted, which is female motorcycle cops. And then you have multiple cozy mystery series, which includes the House Flipper series, which takes place in Nashville, the Mountain Lodge series, which is one of your newer series that takes place in Beach Mountain, North Carolina, where we both live. Well, not in Beach Mountain, but in North Carolina. And then the Southern Homebrew series, which takes place in Chattanooga. And then we have a combined um, collaboration, Trouble in Tumbleweed, that we're doing, but we'll save that for another day. My gosh, you have so many books in series. How many books published? Oh, my goodness. Probably about three dozen, maybe a little, little more, a little less, something like that. I mean, you and I have both been very busy ladies since our careers launched. We <laughs> have. have. <laughs> yeah, that's a good problem to have indeed. So your first book was published in 2011. Is that right? It was November 1st, 2011. So 11, one, 11, which I was sure was going to make it a number one New York Times bestseller with all those ones. <laughs> yeah, that should have happened. It still sold well, but not a number one bestseller. But hey, <laughs> do you sell? I don't, day but, I, but that day I celebrated, I went and gave blood because I thought that was good karma. And then it was kind of funny because that actually became sort of a thing for me. I used to give blood every day, time I had a book release because I thought, oh, maybe this will send something up to the publishing gods. <laughs> and then somewhere along the way, I got out of the habit. I think because we left Texas, you know, I had to set up with Carter Blood Care in Texas. We moved to Nashville and I just kind of got out of the habit. But I should do that again. That, that was always kind of a odd and fun little thing to do and, you know, meaningful, useful for uh, good way to help. Yeah, that's a really, yeah, that's a very cool um, tradition. I love that. And yeah, good karma, sending it out into the universe. All right. So we are here today to talk about adding humor into your writing. You are quite masterful at this. Humor is your um, it's, it's my say? voice. Yeah, my voice. It's it's my go-to. Um, I love I love writing humor because when I first started writing, I did tax work and advising people about their tax problems. It's not the most exciting stuff in the world. <laughs> it's not as boring as you might think either. But it's um, but I needed something kind of to counteract that. And when I first started writing, I actually didn't set out to be funny. I just found that that's what was happening. It was kind of like this is my playtime and I want to have fun with it. And my voice just came out that way. So um, I just went with it. I actually tried to write um, a dark book one time and it ended up having a leprechaun in it and a wet teacher contest. <laughs> All right. So let's jump into our chat about the craft of writing and adding humor to your books. So first of all, 
why would you say that it's important for an author to add humor into their writing? Well, I, I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, one is, you know, this is an example. Life is funny. Funny things happen every day. And I don't think, and I think if a writer doesn't put a little bit of humor, even if it's just light touches, it won't necessarily feel realistic. Even when things are very, very dark, you know, funny things still happen. It can be dark humor. Um, and also I think it, when we have a cast of characters, unless you're writing a book with just, you know, one, one person uh, or just a very small cast, you know, most of us know somebody who's funny. We have the office prankster. We have, you know, the family cut up, the class clown. So, you know, I think putting at least one character in your ensemble who is funny in some way, to some degree, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be over the top. I think that's um, realistic. So I think um, to, to actually to make a book more realistic, it needs some humor. In fact, yeah. and we yeah. all probably within our lives, we all have surrounding us some of those core archetypes that mm -hmm. we then put into our fiction. And so, yeah, I, I agree that it's important to add that for sort of the realism. And then also, would you say that um, in terms of if you're, you know, no matter what you're writing, because this, this uh, YouTube channel and this podcast is for people who are writing whatever, you know, not just necessarily mysteries. And so you might have a spectrum of light, to dark, but even in those darker types of novels, you need some levity, right? Yeah. If, yeah. What do you think about that? And how does that levity um, enhance even the darkness? Well, that's actually, you know, one of the things that humor can do to improve writing is it can um, kind of do two things that are sort of related. And um, one is it can provide comic relief. And the other is it can broaden the reader's emotional experience. So Readers read fiction because they want to feel. So if you can make them not only um, feel scared or sad or worried, anxious, but you can also make them laugh, you have broadened that experience and given them kind of more bang for their buck. Um, but then on kind of related thing, um, uh, the comic relief. You know, if you're writing a really, really dark thriller and you're just bombarding your reader with scene after scene of grisly, grisly stuff, at some point it's just going to overwhelm them. So the comic relief can kind of, um, you know, provide them with sort of, you know, breath. They can take a breath and kind of go, okay, this is, this is kind of coming down <laughs> forever. <laughs> so, um, so what are some techniques that people can use for adding humor to their story specifically? Like, do you have some tips, you know, some recommendations? Ooh. I do. I have lots of tips. So the first thing is, and, and I kind of mentioned this already, is look for places where you're describing something and try to find find weird juxtapositions to describe something. Like one of my favorite examples of this is from Christopher Moore. Have you ever read him? No. I don't know if he's really your taste. His his his, his art have titles like Island of the Sequined Love Nun. The first book I read of his was The Stupidest Angel. And I found that at a discount bookstore. I thought, that's just hilarious. And it was about the stupid angel at Christmas. And then he has Biff, the, or the uh, Lamb, the story of Biff, Christ's childhood pal. You know, so he has all these very strange setups in his books. But, but anyway, there's one book called Fluke. And it's about these marine biologists and they're studying whales. And he talks about the way that the whale song sounds, and he describes it as an ambulance driving through pudding. And I thought, okay, that is the weirdest description, but it's so apt. I mean, when you think of an, what would an ambulance sound like driving through pudding? It would be, 
(laughs) That is perfect. And then he has another book that stars a guy who owns a secondhand store and, um, and his wife dies in childbirth. So he's got this baby and he's got her one of those little packs on the front of him. And the guy's real nerdy. And he says, when he describes how that looks, he says, it's like my daughter was wearing a nerd for a parachute. And I thought that was really cute. So is it, does it make you wonder how long he had to think to come up with those very original metaphors or did they, is he just the type of person that it comes to him? And, and how about you? Does it just come to you? I know you said you put asterisks in at, at certain points, but are there times when just this greatly descriptive, perfect metaphor will come to you? There are some times that I'm like, I'll type it. that I'm like, ee! <laughs> you know, that was so good. You know, so it's like moments of, of divine inspiration. Yeah. I'd like to think that he has to work at those things too. Because humor it can be hard. I mean, in all honesty, you know, writing a sad scene for me is so much easier. I can just go straight forward with that. But when I want to be funny, it takes me about five times longer to write a funny scene. Because with writing, you don't have the comedic timing that you can have like on a stage. So, you know, comedians... They count that second when they're waiting for the laugh, you know, how many beats do they need to wait before they do the punchline, you know, and when somebody is reading your work, you can't control that. So you really have to phrase things very carefully to almost force that comedic timing and to make sure it doesn't fall flat. So it can be harder. And that's interesting because, uh, you know, I don't know, do you watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and and you've seen stand-up comedy, you know, especially Robin Williams comes to mind where, you know, they'll say a joke and then the laugh doesn't come and they're like, okay, well that didn't work or that was a bust or, you know, whatever. So they recognize, and then I'm sure they tweak that. So they get the humor because of that self-deprecate, self-deprecation. Thank you. (laughs) Um, See, you know, so they get the laugh, but I imagine in future shows for a comedian uh, that's on stage live, they would, you know, change that joke or write it out completely so that they avoid that bomb in the future, right? Well, it's funny you say that because when we lived in Nashville, I actually took a stand-up comedy class. You know, I, I knew I, I, that being on a stage was not really my goal, but I needed a new creative input. And I thought, well, this would be fun. You know, I'll learn something new. And we did a show at the end and I realized I really belong on a page, not a stage, but it was a fun experience. But, but our teacher is a guy who does, is a Barney Fife impersonator. Um, and his name is Rick Roberts, Rick Roberts School of Comedy. So if anybody wants to take that, he might have online classes, but he was really good. It's R.I.K. Roberts. But um, he was talking about how he, that exact thing, how he had this joke about how he and his son, you know, were brushing their teeth and his son looked at him and said, oh, we look alike. And I can't even remember where the joke went, but he said he misspoke that joke one time. And he said, I was brushing my teeth last week. And just that, everybody in the audience started laughing. When he, instead of saying last week when I was, you know, one night when I was brushing my teeth, because that sort of implied that he only brushes his teeth once a week. And so from then on, that's how he phrased that joke. So, um, you know, it is it is important. Word The words are so important. And that's one thing I always tell people when they're trying to write humors, pick the funniest words. And I can give you some examples of that. Um, Jana DeLeon has a book called Lucky, and it involves um, a bunch of people playing poker and it also involves these porta potty salesmen. So, of course, what she, I'm sure she sat down and thought, what is the funniest salesman I can have? You know, what is the funniest thing they can sell? Porta potties. So, the town she put these poker playing porta potty salesmen in was Royal Flush, Louisiana, because that works on two levels, right? Royal Flush with porta potty, Royal Flush. Right, the double entendre. Yeah. And then Dorinda Jones, who we all love, in First Grave on the Right, she has her character, Charlie Davidson, describe her 
apartment as approximately the size of a Cheez-It. You know, and she could have said approximately the size of a saltine or a cracker, but Cheez-It is just a funny word. Words that start with, with a ch sound or a k sound, I learned that in that stand-up comedy class, are just funnier, or that end, end in that. So chaka <laughs> are funnier words. So why is so, that? Was there some sort of logic behind that? I don't know. I think it's yeah. I think it's just something that's ingrained in us. Chuckle. I don't know. You know that has those sounds in it. It's, they're just you know like a sound is soothing, soothing sound, but cockadoodle uh, or something. You know that's just funnier. I mean it's it's just the assonance of it. Does the the sounds? So, um, okay, so some more techniques. Um, wordplay, all kinds of wordplay. So the first thing, you know, we're always told as writers, don't use cliches, but if you contort a cliche, you can get a lot of mileage out of that. So uh, my kids and I went to a um, comic book store one time, they had all these buttons on this rack. And one of them said, if life hands you lemons, tell those lemons to go beep themselves. <laughs> and I was not laughing in the store because I thought, okay, not only did that contort the cliche, but but it contorted it totally around, you know, is, you know, because normally if life hands you lemons, make lemonade is so sweet and clean. And they, boy, they really turn that around. But you could take that same thing. If life hands you lemons, make lemon bars or make lemon, lemon martinis or, or, you know, something. So that's, that's another kind of easy way, you know, to add some humors, take a cliche and flip it on its head. Um, euphemisms are another uh, funny wordplay technique. So, uh, and that's a, a good technique to use in spots where you want to soften the blow. You know, that's when we use them in, in real life or, you know, dance around a touchy subject. Like instead of saying, um, you know, people were having sex, we say they were making the beast with two bags or, you know, something like that. Or if you, if Doing a guy the horizontal like, salsa, as I say, in one of my salsa, or, you know, middle say, I need to go see a man about a dog. If they need to go to the bathroom, you know, um, for death. Is that what say, that means? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I don't think I ever knew that. You ever thought they were going to see about a dog? <laughs> I don't know. They like just had to go see about something. <laughs> you know? Or, um, you know, death, we say, kick, you know, uh, pushing up daisies or kicking the bucket because, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about some of those things. So if there's a point in your book where people are uncomfortable or dealing with an uncomfortable topic. If you can use a euphemism there, maybe even make one up of your own, you know, that can add some humor. Puns are another um, humor device. And my kids always groan when I come up with puns, but all, almost all cozy mysteries have punny um, titles. You know, paw enforcement is one, uh, Melissa's books, you know, um, all the bread shop, a murder you'll regret has a Yule log. In right. There. Needed um, to death. Yeah. Yeah, needed to death, you know, so they, they you know, do plays on words. So puns are another one. Um, another kind of easy one is the rule of three. And all of my death and taxes books use the rule of three in the titles. This is the third book in the series, Death, Taxes, and Extra Hold Hairspray. It comes in a very large print size. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is a poster they made me. <laughs> um, but um, so with, with the rule of three, you have three things in a list. And the first two things are taking your reader one direction. And then with the third word or phrase, you send them in another direction. So death, taxes, and extra hold hairspray. My first book was death, taxes, and a French manicure. And um, when that was still in manuscript form before it got published, I won an award at Romance Writers of America called the Golden Heart Award. It was for unpublished manuscripts. And when they announced the title of my book, people in the audience laughed. And I thought, yay. You know, the rule of three, it worked because you know, death and taxes are negatives. And then in a French manicure, what, you know, but my favorite example of that is from Saturday Night Live. And this is back in the 80s. 
And it was when the Cuisinarts first came out, the food processors, you know, and the regular commercial would say it slices, it dices, it julienes, it does all these things. Well, they had, you know, this, this parody commercial on there and they're like, it slices, it dices, it circumcises. <laughs> so so that, that was an example of the rule of three. Okay. So another one is malapropisms. And that's when people just use a word wrong. And that can um, either be used to show ignorance, although sometimes you, know, you have to be careful with that. Like you don't want to be making fun of someone who speaks another language. Like they did that some in Modern Family where Gloria would, would say something wrong. Like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of an example right now that she, was, that she did, but um, escaping me. But, you know, that's kind of making fun of somebody who's not a native English speaker. So that's probably not going to fly. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's kind of like the, the mean uh, topic. It's going for the sort of the lowest common denominator, the easy laugh. Right. Yeah. 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 And in My Name is Earl, they did that all the time. Like at one point he said something about an ovulating fan instead of an oscillating fan. And he was, you know, portrayed as kind of an, an ignorant guy. But, you know, is it is it OK to make fun of? <laughs> I, don't know. I think that's funny, but I also thought that show was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I used to really like that show. That, yeah. Oh, I remember the Gloria one. It was instead of um, ultimatums, she said old tomatoes. That was that was the example. I knew it would come to me. My brain doesn't work as well as it used to. But um, another one is, is double entendres. And these are often sexual. Um, you know, Mike, Michael from The Office was always saying, you know, that's what she said after somebody would say something. So you can have a double entendre. But it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual. But if you can find something that has kind of two ways to interpret it. Um, and just funny word choices, like I talked about the royal flesh and the cheese. It. Um, some other good techniques are exaggeration and understatement. So with exaggeration, you know, uh, you can have an exaggeration in dialogue. Like an example from that is years ago, I used to work with this girl and um, this was during college and she had gone for spring break with some friends to Florida. And while well, I worked, <laughs> she was from a much wealthier family, but she was talking about how she and her friend were on this double wide float and how the current carried him out. And she said, we were halfway to Cuba. And I thought, that's hilarious way she said this. So she, of course she wasn't halfway to Cuba, but just the exaggeration was funny. Southerners are particularly great at that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 I have a friend uh, in Texas, my good friend's husband. And I mean, he's masterful. I could never in a million years come up with the things that he says in just describing in his storytelling and the way he describes things and those types of expressions that are so totally Southern. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's yeah, exaggeration. It, it, yeah, it's kind of a Southern voice kind of thing. But um, And you can also have like exaggerated characters too, like Monk, um, you know, and the, all the guys from Big Bang, you know, over, over the top, nerdy. Uh, Monk was over the top, um, OCD, although, you know, you find out he, his reasons for it are actually kind of sad, but, um, but it made him kind of a quirky, funny character. Well, when you think about it, that that's true of... I don't know, maybe most of the sitcoms that are out there, you think of each character as a little bit exaggerated. So Monica is OCD to the extreme. You know, Ross is a sad sack to the extreme. Joey is a little dense to the extreme. Phoebe is a little in the clouds to the extreme. I mean, they're all a little bit extreme in their, you know, in how they're represented or presented. And you can also have understatement with humor too. And, and a more classic example of that is Bob Newhart. You know, he underreacted to things. He was such a straight man that he almost never had like much 
emotion at all. He it's like, what was it going to take to rattle this guy, you know? And so his underreaction and understatement can be um, a humor technique too. And I think the, I think the best example of this is from Monty Python and the Holy Grail when, you know, they're going through the woods and there's that, you know, black knight who's none shall pass and they get into a sword fight and I can't even remember the main, I guess he's, is it Arthur? He cuts off the knight's arm and there's blood just gushing out of it. And so he thinks, of course, the fight's over because the knight's gushing blood and he looks at it and says, oh, it's just a flesh wound. You know, and then it's all chopped down, no limbs. And he's like, I'll bite your ankles. You know, that was so funny because just the understatement of, yeah, it's just a flesh wound. No, it's not. So, and, so and for those of you uh, too young to know Bob Newhart, <laughs> uh, comedian, when was his show on the Bob Newhart show? Probably the 70s, right? 70s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were kids. Yeah, we yeah, were and I mean, I saw it on in syndication on reruns. I'm sure in the '70s. So yeah, so he was um, comedian, and he was a psychologist, psychiatrist, or psychologist, and yeah, and he was definitely the straight man. And these other characters were over the top in their extreme uh, psychoses, I guess. <laughs> you know, Tom also might be a, a more modern day example. Is nothing ru- seems to ruffle him much. You know, he's always so happy. You know, and again, you find out his reasons for being that way are kind of dark. But it's like, he's just always so happy. He's not going to get ruffled. That's under, kind of an understated way and a different different kind of understatement there. But um, another humor technique is is a repetition of something, a running gag. And going back to Big Bang, because I love that, they always had um, a, a roommate agreement that they would come back to. And there would be these crazy terms of the roommate agreement about what the thermostat had to be set out, what shows they're going to watch, that kind of thing. So that would, that would come up about maybe every fifth or sixth episode, you know, some term of the roommate agreement. And then there was also a recurring bit of dialogue where Sheldon would say, I'm not crazy. My mother's had me tested because somebody would say, you're crazy. He's like, no, I'm not. My mother had me tested. So that would come up, you know, every fifth or sixth episode too. So those, those kind of running. It's okay. So kind of like uh, my, my new favorite show, Extraordinary Attorney Wu, where every episode once, twice, maybe three times, she, somebody will say, she'll uh, have to say what her name is, Wu Yang Wu, and then she'll say it's the same forward and backward, just like Hayek indeed, and uh, Rotor for, you know, this whole like spiel that she goes through and it's repeated and that adds to the humor. The first time it's funny, but then it's that she yeah. has to say it every time and, and you yeah. know, it's coming. You're just like waiting for it. <laughs> and it's that humor. I think another great thing that does, you know, besides just adding that touch of humor, it, it's a hook. Cause everybody's, you know, once they, once you've done it twice, they're like, Oh, this is a recurring gag. I'm going to look for the next one. So it's a hook that keeps them reading, looking for the next gag, but it also makes the reader feel like they're in on an inside joke. You know, and that's, that's kind of fun to feel like, oh, I get that because I've been watching this. You know, this is, you know, we're in on this together, you know. So I think it's a good way to kind of build sort of a bridge with the reader, too. So um, uh, let's see. What else we got? Oh, going back to exaggeration. So a funny setting that's exaggerated is from uh, Rita Rudner's book, which I had around here earlier, but I, I said it somewhere. But anyway, the book is called Turning the Tables, and it's set in Vegas. She's got a... Um, uh, what do you call it when they have a, they live in Vegas, a residency. And um, she wrote this book about this casino called Heaven. And it's like, you go up this uh, gold escalator to these pearly gates and they have a fog machine, you know, sending out fog and the security guards have angel wings, you know, with their gun tucked under. So she really kind of overdid, exaggerated the 
the setting there. So that's the thing to remember is like the, the exaggeration understatement. It can be in dialogue setting plot, you know, any of those things. It's kind of like um, similar also when you think about a fish out of water character, like um, um, the John Lithgow show. What was that? Third rock from the sun. Something Third like rock from the sun yeah. And then Mark and Mindy, for example. So you've got mm-hmm. this, these characters who the comedy comes from them trying to adjust to this new world where they don't fit in or they don't belong. And now resident alien. Have yes. You right. It's yes. Hilarious. Oh my God. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious. I, I, yeah. I love that show. That's one of our favorites. Yeah. Cool. Well, gosh, you've given us so many great tips. It's fabulous. Um, and I think I hit everything. <laughs> good. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, you guys, if you are not funny or you don't think you're funny, you can still add humor to your writing. I don't consider myself funny at all, but I do say that my humor comes out in my writing because I have time to think about it and think about, well, what would be funny? And so I'm able to put in some humor, you know, to varying degrees, depending on the series that I'm writing. I have one series that's funnier than some of the others, a little slapstick, that that slapstick humor, like the Lucy and Ethel kind of thing is um, pretty funny. Another dated reference. Who would, what would be, well, I guess like Stephanie Plum would be a good, more contemporary um, caper kind of humor. But anyway, you don't have to consider yourself funny to be funny in your writing, I think is the point. And Diane has brought up some excellent uh, examples of how we can add humor into our writing. So thank you so much for being here and for these great tips and for being so funny yourself. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Thanks for stopping by, everyone. And we will see you next time. Come back for more tips, tricks, and the craft of writing with WriterSpark Academy's podcast and learn more about our online courses at www.writersparkacademy.com. Thank you for listening and until next time, happy writing.